Okay, same terrible question. It's new material. And it's interesting that they had us read over and over and over again this same particular passage indeed to try to, to memorize it. So just curious, obviously this is very different. What, what, what was this week or this material, was it doing for you? Did it give you questions or confirmation? Do you feel like it's connected or disconnected from what we've been doing? Um, any takers on my bad question? Well, it's not a good question. It's really, how, what, what's the material doing for you? Are you feeling it's connected to what we've spent the last 16 weeks on, and if so, how? Um, meditating over these 18 verses, which again, they've asked us to do every single day. Um, maybe those in particular. Um, I guess what came up to me was wisdom. I hadn't really thought much about wisdom, and that was something that was important in the, in the lesson for me. Would you say more about that? Um, <clears> that was a feminine, it's a feminine pronoun, and that's the feminine part of God, and I love that. Um, I've, I've always loved that first 18 verses of John. Mm -hmm. I can't say that's memorized, but it certainly it's so familiar to me that it's comfortable and it's poetic and poetry speaks to me. So. Did, did you find, um, you know, you mentioned the, the wisdom part from the teaching. Did you find specific um, resonance of that in those first, first 18 verses? I mean, how, how did you connect wisdom to no, the No, I don't think that, I think, I think, yeah, maybe. Wisdom was got, with God at creation. Mm. Right in the, in the very beginning. It's never been a part. It's never something we have to add. It's kind of a bridge from creation to Jesus. Mm. Sort of. What would you say? A bridge. A bridge. A bridge. A bridge. Oh, okay. Thanks. You know, I've always thought in terms of masculine, God and father and, and, the, and the masculine. And honestly, it never particularly bothered me. But I have to say, I love hearing about the feminine aspect, and, and it's always been there, but I haven't been there, you know. It's, it was, it was a kind of new for me to be able to study and think about that. It's interesting in Buddhism, uh, wisdom is also preferred as a woman. Yes. We spent a lot of time in Proverbs, right? The, yeah, the, the that's true. Wisdom is. is female, but so is folly, right? So... <laughs> And, and I like um, in I in I in among the readings today. I like the uh, wisdom of Solomon in, in there because that kind of emphasized it more. Hmm. Well, one of the things that caught my attention. Uh, what he said in the beginning was that how we choose to live this 
not the teaching of this gospel. It's a matter of life and death. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of spiritual life or non-spiritual life. And I don't, I never have thought about it that way. But, you know, really, uh, walking with God is a very serious matter. And that is, uh, by the choices that we make, uh, determines whether or not we will be with Him for in eternity. Or, you know, so it's... Uh, um, and it's also, you know, being consciously aware of God other than all, all, all during the week other than just on Sundays. I thought something that was really um, big in this lesson, too, was things are going to be different. I desire, this is from Matthew, I desire mercy, not sacrifice new wine, new wine skin, mm -hmm. things are different now. The way we, it's new. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because when we really pay attention to God and, and Jesus and follow and become the person that they create, that we were created to be, then we do change. Uh, you can call it. We we know that as we age through life, we mature. Hopefully, but we also mature in faith too. And but the thing about uh, maturing in God is that we have that constant help, that love that is always coming to us, whether or not we are thinking about it or not. So if we want to grow more in God, then we think about God more than what we used to. We talk to God, we pray, and things of that sort. Just little, maybe little short prayers during the day. But just something that brings us back to the origin of our being and our destination. Um, well, for me, it was, um, it was like a confirmation. I kind of, um, for me, the, the most beautiful part is um, thinking about um, the word being with God before creation. Um, and this might be a total tangent, but um, 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 when you think about music um, and a musician creating music, um, very often they'll start with like a musical sketch. And I'm not a musician, so I might say something. Um, they'll start with a, like a musical idea, like a statement, and they can, from that, they can kind of create, you know, a symphony. And if you look at like Bach's musical offering, um, and that, that six voice fugue is, you know, it, you start with the exposition, the statement, and then it goes through these different repeating imitations of similar musical statements and phrases, and then it comes back at the very end to that very, that original um, idea. And so for me, just kind of the whole unraveling, the revelation um, of creation and, and Jesus, is, it's like this just beautiful symphony for me. And mm -hmm. so for me, that's what a great image. I love this. Hmm. But when you think about you know, an artist, when they paint, they sketch, 
the soil and dig out land. And, and, uh, and then they continue to work with it and build on it and improve it. And that's really what our life is. Uh, you know, our life is a journey to God, uh, among a lot of other people on the journey. And so we always learn new things, we add new things, we, we get different insights into the scriptures and to ideas that God gives us. So it's like a, you know, so when you're being creative, everything starts small. And just very similar, like um, an artist can create a piece mm -hmm. and the observer may see something different mm -hmm. than what the, gar uh, the artist um, intended. And you can do the same with music. <coughs> yeah. mm. You know, you do that even, uh, I was a, a principal and educator and Remember the first time I really t I was given in charge of a huge school with a thousand kids with all kinds of inner city many problems and things that needed to be and that was a work of art to, to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the heart of it is the, the students that are there and where do you envision what they need and all. So it, it's all mm -hmm. as um, and that can be transformed into your our lives, yeah. you know. So the whole of us being mm -hmm. go through that same process over and over in many ways. Um, it's, and to look at that at such depth is like almost overpowering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but um, yet, um, and honor that you say, my God, God goodness, you know this. This allows me to look at this in my life and mm -hmm. our lives in such a amazing way. Yeah, it's really, really pretty beautiful. So you've mentioned a few things, if it's okay. Am I allowed to just do a little bit of highlighting on some of the things you've mentioned? And then let's see if that takes us somewhere. Is that okay? At any point you can like withdraw your permission. <laughs> I may listen, I may not. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting that we read this thing in Mark um, about wineskins. And I, maybe I want to start with that if I can. And I want to do this really obliquely. If, you, if you've done education at all, you probably are aware of this Swiss um, psychologist named Jean Piaget. He... Um, He's kind of a clever guy, and he ended up with this funny job grading IQ tests. And when he was doing this, he, he realized that um, kids essentially were all missing the same question, depending not on how many books they'd read or their education, but how old they were. And particularly, the famous one is that if you have a container that's short and wide, and a container that's tall and skinny. What Piaget noticed is you can take a one cup measuring cup, fill it in front of water, fill it with water in front of a child, they're watching, and pour it in here, and of course the water level will be there, and then you can fill it with water in front of the child and pour it in here. Now they watched. 
and you can ask them which one has more water. And under the age of five, they'll always tell you this one does. Now they watched you put the same amount of water in there. They watched that. But their brain doesn't understand conservation of matter. It looks at relative volume. Which, by the way, I'm pretty convinced why that's why most bars really like the conical glass. Because it actually has like a third of the volume of a sphere, right? But it looks like more. And, and, and in general, like our brains are foolish that way. Uh, and they're hardwired to be foolish. Uh, more on that later if you want. But what, what Piaget says is, you know, the way this is overcome is that our brain grows in layers. And we know that's right. Our brain starts out tiny, and then we grow a layer over that, and then one over that. And, and particularly when you're a boy, that takes you to about 26 before that finishes. But along the way, you end up um, sort of going from one worldview to another. And his word for worldview is this word equilibrium. So whether it's right or wrong, everybody has an equilibrium point at which they kind of make sense of the world. You know, the sun's going to rise, it's rain, whatever. You know, we just sort of have things that we sort of inherently trust the world works this way. And then, um, inevitably, we run into new information that doesn't fit with our equilibrium. So it's possible, uh, I mean, just to throw out one of my own uh, journeys in, into wineskins, that you believe women cannot be ministers. And then you encounter a woman in ministry whose ministry seems very real. <laughs> this brings you to a crisis. Because you categorically rejected that, but now your experience is in conflict with your category. What will you do? <laughs> well, you, you sort of are going to do one of two things, is what Piaget says. You are either going to accommodate your worldview to the new information, which means you will change your worldview. You're either going to change the way you look at the world, or you're going to assimilate the data into your old worldview. You're either going to change the data or you're going to change your worldview. Now, either way, you're going to arrive at a new equilibrium. So just to think through the, the women in ministry example, you experience this woman in ministry and you're either going to say, wow, that was real and my category was wrong. I'm going to have to say some women can be in ministry or, or um, maybe all can. Or you're going to say, that was a fluke. <laughs> that was an outlier. I was in a strange emotional state. Oh, she wasn't ministering. She was teaching, and women can do that, but they can't pre. I mean, you, you sort of massage the information to sort of fit into your category. By the way, we do this stuff all of the time. And, and there's a reason why people are very prone to stereotyping and prejudice, because there's often some truth to it in our experience. Often. 
some truth to it. The problem is that we, 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 our brain really likes hard categories, not fluid ones. <laughs> so what we do is we, we take these experiences that seem to repeat themselves and we make them hard categories and we, we make round pegs fit into square holes because our brain would rather do that. Like I said, either way you end up at new equilibrium. Now, perhaps Jesus is talking about following the gospel in this way when he says, look, you can't take new wine and fit it into your old wineskins. If you do, you'll ruin both the new wine and essentially you'll ruin your way of living. Now, I didn't want to be so radical. I mean, I do come from this evangelical background, but I think one way to hear this is that the gospel is new information. And my experience of Christianity or any other religion is that we would much rather assimilate it into our worldview than change our worldview to accommodate the gospel. So what we'd like to do is take our normal structures of thinking and slip Jesus in there wherever he might fit and back up what we already enjoy doing. God is a Republican. God believes in the United States being the best country in the world. It's okay if poor people don't have health care. They didn't work hard enough. Sorry, this is all very like... Sound, liberal sounding democratic beliefs. We could do it on the other side as well. But see, essentially what I'm doing is just backing up what I believe in God's name. Instead of thinking, how do I have to accommodate my thinking to fit the gospel? And I think one way to think about this new wine, new wineskins, is that if we don't accommodate our lives to the gospel, we ruin it. And so, gospel means good news, and when we assimilate it, it's not good news anymore. Good news, you're going to hell when you die, but you might not have to. Is that good news? Well, I think that's mixed news at best. <laughs> God loves you, but you might send you to hell. Is that good news? None of you are answering. <laughs> but I would somehow in, in the Judeo and not even say Jude, Jewish people don't even think of like that in general in the Christian tradition that's what we've become comfortable with God loves you but you've got a good chance of getting sent to hell forever if you mess this up there's hell to pay and I want to tell you, I think that's assimilating the gospel. I don't know that we've accommodated to it. Yeah, but since uh, we, uh, what did it look like if we accommodated to it? You could do purgatory. Well, it could introduce you to purgatory. Um, but I, 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 think, I think the thing is, what we're struggling to do in, in my own thinking, Meg, is, is to not think outside the box is a funny thing, but to take things like grace so seriously that we have to reimagine everything else. And what we like to do is say, well, God will forgive you if you're sorry, 
or if you ask for it. But that's how people are. People are that way. So is God like a person, or are we invited to be like God who is greater than people? I mean, you know, if you, this is an interesting thing to think about, just how we develop as human beings. Um, this is a different thinker. This guy, uh, Larry Kohlberg, and, and his student, uh, Carol Gilligan, rewrote this uh, moral development theory, is that the first stage is essentially um, black and white thinking. The second stage is mommy says no. <laughs> and really what that means is there's a fear of punishment. So I better do what mommy says or I'll be punished. Um, the third stage is you start to think about like what's good for your family and then you think about what's good for your neighborhood and what's good for your country and then humanity. So you sort of grow into these... Actually, I did that wrong. The first stage is not black and white. The first stage is I thinking, what's good for me? What do I want to do? I, I'm, I'm getting this back. It's something like that. I, you get the gist of it. I have to look this up. It's been a long, long time. Fear of punishment is like stage two. And, you know, what the scriptures tell us is true love drives out all fear. So if we're afraid that God's going to punish us forever, that's lower level thinking. If we come to God in fear, we have not remained with God in love. Now, I know lots of very bright people. I mean, exceptional surgeons, attorneys, who in their career field are extremely advanced, and their relationship with God is based on a get-out-of-hell card. And so I, I, I wonder about that, and I wonder if that isn't some kind of assimilation, because isn't that, after all, how our criminal system works? Consider, if something happens in a community, and you know there's this great play, Les Miserables, and Jean Valjean goes to prison as a slave for five years for stealing a loaf of bread. He stole it because his sister's child was starving and he had no job. He was willing to work but couldn't find one. So the question is, it's the easiest thing to do is to punish the thief instead of questioning how can we rehabilitate the system. So I think the gospel actually asks us to think about the bigger sense of justice, not punishment. Yeah. 
As you know, I'm an incest survivor, and it took me 18 years to get to where I could forgive my father and my mother. And uh, anyway, uh, but gradually I began to be able to pray for them. And um, but it, sometimes it was like, you know, uh, good man, yeah, help them. <laughs> you know. But uh, this was after they died. So anyway, uh, gradually, as time went on, I was able to pray for them a little bit more. And the time I was praying in uh, an office that had a very definite litany in it, that at the end of it, she prayed for the dead and for the parents. And so I wasn't allowed to do that. And then, gradually I could do it a little bit more, and a little bit more. And one day, uh, when I was at prayer, uh, they, they came to mind, my mother and my father, they came to mind. And I felt something standing next to me. And I looked and I didn't say anything, but I knew somebody was there. And I thought, you know, since I've been thinking about mom and dad, maybe that's, that's their presence and they're letting me know that they have done whatever atonement they needed to do and now they are with God and happy. And there was so much freedom that came in that that it was, I mean, it was such a happy experience. I mean, I, if I could have floated, I would, <laughs> you know. But so that has led me to wonder that maybe I don't believe in hellfire, unless, unless you have a burning sensation inside yourself or something like that. But I'm more on this line that regret can be a serious punishment for not having listened and followed God. Well, there, there is a theologian by the name of John Hick mm -hmm. who, who, who wrote a book called Evil and God's Love. And his proposition was that we will all, we will all continue to be tested, but eventually we will all arrive at heaven. Eventually, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I... Yeah. But the point is, at some point in there, we have to come to terms with what, what we have not done. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, think, I think what I want us to think about, though, that we're still trying to work out because we're so tied to a worldview in which we get even with people when they're wrong that we have a hard time imagining God as any different from that. And what we often do is say, oh, God must just be just like that and even better at it than we are. So, you know, sometimes I do things that are good for other people, but I didn't do it for like the rightest reasons. So it doesn't count for God. And what we, again, God is better at the game than we are. And I wonder if that's accurate or if we are just playing it completely wrong. And this is why I put this thing up here about wine and wineskins, what we really want to do is fit the gospel and following God into the worldview we already have, because that's what we know how to do well. And I think the question is, <laughs> maybe we have to try to fit ourselves into God's household, which would require things like change and discipleship, and would give us a new kind of life that honestly the writer of John is going to call eternal life. That doesn't mean after we die. I promise you, track this as we read John. Eternal life is about right now.
I don't know about hell forever. I don't know about that. That that concept is not around at this time. Eternal punishment, not around. That comes much, much later and really gets developed um, through Dante and some of like the, the desert fathers in the five, six, seven, eight hundreds, but not now. Hell is a place in the Bible, and I, you can see it on the map, I've told this to you, it's a place where you burn trash. So hell is an image about annihilation of garbage. So do I hope that God will annihilate the garbage from me? Absolutely I do. What's funny is, I think this, this model up here shows I'm often very interested in holding on to my garbage and I'm surprised when its annihilation hurts me because I'm holding it. Instead, it would be a lot better if I could say, this is garbage. Please burn it over there. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this book called The Great Divorce in which he sort of says hell is only eternal if we make it. But I want to back down to that because I'll tell you um, hell is a very real experience in my life. I have lived in hell. If you know an alcoholic or drug addict, they have lived in hell. And if you love them, you, you probably lived there with them. It's not that one hell is worse than the other. Um, but I am positive that God is not trying to put us there and hurt us. God is trying to call us out of there. And... I don't always know what that means for accountability and justice, but I know that if we assimilate the gospel into what we do, the wineskins will burst and all the wine is ruined. Instead of it stretches us, we stretch with it, and we enjoy this wine. Yeah, because Jesus gives us new life. Yeah, and I think, I just even think the way we approach Jesus in general is. In general, we say, Adam and Eve just messed everything up, and then God had to think, how do I fix it? And then God got this idea of Jesus. Instead of, what if God's plan was always, always, to become a human being so that God could enjoy being human? Well, Mike, that's just really positive and new agey, is it? <laughs> well, the, but the thing is this, you didn't get to enjoy it. I think you got to enjoy 33 years of it. I think we normally think so much about poor Jesus, he had to suffer because that's our experience of working hard and giving up things for other people. And maybe it's because we get it wrong. Maybe Jesus actually really enjoyed all of that stuff. And, and maybe we can do that too. Well, how could he enjoy being nailed on a cross? Well, of course, that wasn't physically pleasurable but he clearly was committed to doing it or he wouldn't have done it. If we, uh, I mean, I think this is the truth, you know, we, we sort of know or, or we figure out that loving somebody else is going to be painful because it means we don't get our way. <laughs> Whether it's our parents or our spouse, especially our kids. But boy, you know, um, they're sure even in those moments of hurt, there's a lot of joy to be had. Well, I think that's right. I don't know. And I wonder if that isn't in our invitation to sort of rethink, rethink this. Did Jesus really dread being a human being? Or did he enjoy humanity? Do we have to dread things like 
having gas and pimples and, you know, being tired? Or is that just part of our humanity? Is it bad that stuff hurts? Or really, is it all right? I mean, you know, I think, I think these are questions about what does it really mean to be human and what does it mean for God to be human? I mean, that's sort of what this reading is sort of asking us at the last questions, you know. Um, how is it that God becomes human? You know, the early Christians had a really hard time with this. They thought, actually, the body is a bad thing. It's sensual, and it's earthly, and the spirit is this beautiful, effervescent thing. So the way to handle it is punish the body and free the spirit. And we still want to do that sometimes. We, we, we do it in, in, in strange ways. Um, and we, we actually sort of worship those things. I, I mean, I, I just give you an example. There's something called exercise bulimia, where we say, look, I worked out really hard. I can eat whatever I want. And, and that's just so tied to a negative view of the body and to food and to enjoyment that there's, there's no health in that. I was at a cycling class yesterday or Monday. I don't know if I'll go back to it because it was really hard. But the instructor was like, working out really hard so you can have that June body at the beautiful pool. And, and I'm like, I'm too old for that to be my goal. You know, because I've had that June body and my life is not any more fun with that. It's not. Like, I'm not here to have a June body. I'm here because, like, actually I want to enjoy my body and, like, a health, healthy lifestyle. That's what I want to do. Um... So I think there's got to be some accommodation. That's really what I want to say. And again, if we imagine Jesus hated being human, then of course, humanity is to be afraid of, to be ashamed of. But what if that's not how it was? But are you saying that um, there is no accountability before God for the way we have lived or not lived? No, I'm saying it has to be totally different from human accountability. Otherwise, we'd just be worshiping ourselves. I mean, I just think that's the hard thing. Yeah. Because, I, you know, we don't know the circumstances of people's lives. So that's why God says don't, don't judge other people. And so there will obviously be things that God will take into account about that person's life that we know nothing about. You know, so... Um, uh, but I think that, uh, that uh, we really have some, done some wrong things in our lives and we, we're, you know, we did them on purpose. There's got to be some kind of accountability for that. I don't believe it's fire or hell. But, I think that's an interesting thing to pay attention to, and, I, and I, would, I would challenge you to think about the things you know you've done wrong in your life. Did you do them really to be demonic? Was your intent to be Satan in the world, or at a certain point were you acting out of anger or exhaustion or frustration or because your parents had shown you that was the way to parent or your brother had betrayed you and you were getting revenge? I mean, were you doing it to destroy them or were you doing it because that was the best thinking you had at the time? I mean, I, I read this book and I'm really struggling to live into this, um, that the difference between joyful people and unjoyful people is whether or not we believe the following phrase. 
people are pretty much doing the best they can with what they have. And I will tell you, being a J on the Myers-Briggs, it is very hard for me to look at someone who chooses to be homeless and say they're doing the best they can. <laughs> However, I'm, I'm trying to get some perspective on this because homelessness isn't really a moral decision. It's just a choice you make. There are a lot of things wrapped up in it, but who's to say sleeping on the street is morally wrong? If that's what you want to do, that's what you do. Obviously, abusing children is morally wrong, but you know that uh, something like more than 95% of child abusers were abused as children. Now, I'm not saying that justifies it, but the truth is, you know, if you've ever parented at all, 90% of your parenting came instinctually from the way you were parented. Uh, you know that if you were a teacher in a classroom, whether or not you had kids, it came from the way you were taught. And from the way you're, or a reaction, or a reaction, that's right. And so, you know, again, I'm not trying to say, well, that means nothing really matters. But, but in general, I think, again, if people are doing the best <laughs> they can with what they have, even if we think they could do better, uh, that just becomes an interesting way to have to think about our lens of justice and what our response should be. I believe in accountability. I, this bothered me first. This, you have a crisis and you have to accommodate and assimilate. Because to me, that in both cases, what was there came to stay with you. I was trying to think in, in the wineskins thing, too. Yeah. I was just trying to think of all of a sudden, I thought, to me, it's more like a, a crisis sometimes brings you to the point of like a, a caterpillar to a butterfly. That's this one. That's this one. This is the one where you crawl out of the chrysalis and you're still a caterpillar. <laughs> I, I mean, I really think that's right. And, and again, these can happen at very small levels. And I gave you one about women in ministry. And what's interesting is, I will tell you, once you turn a card over like that, there are many, many other cards that you have to start turning. And that brings me to maybe to the next idea, which is about the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is not the Bible. The Word is Jesus. I mean, this is so important. Because as an evangelical, I was taught that the Word of God, that this is the Word of God. And it is not. <laughs> this is words about God, some words from God, but the Word of God is Jesus. That is so different from my Protestant faith because I mistook that for the living God. And, and of course, that's just a snapshot, not the living God. And if we take this really, really seriously, right, then honestly, as, as Christian people or Jewish people, this is an anchor for us. But if the resurrected Jesus ever disagrees with this, we follow the resurrected Jesus. <laughs> Which, by the way, is why we celebrate gay marriage in the Episcopal Church. Whether it's in here or not, I'm positive the resurrected Jesus would celebrate it. 
I mean, I think that's how we do it. And the, the, the thing that we often miss here, if it's okay to say, is that John is doing something that we've swallowed only small bits of, which is um, he, John is using this Neoplatonic idea. You know, Plato is a student of Socrates, and, and, you know, he's the one who wrote about Socrates and the Socratic method and all that. And, and he was around 350 BCE, and the Gospel of John is 450 years later. And this word that he uses, uh, the word logos, we, we translate it as word. Like biology is words about life or the study of life. Sometimes we call it study of. But in the Platonic category, the, the Logos is not just words about. The Logos is the universal ordering creative principle. And if you remember your Plato at all, there's these categories that are essentially called the forms. You know, so a Great Dane and a Chihuahua look very different. But Plato argues they have the form of a dog. They have the form. And the same thing would be true about horses. Really, he talks about horses. Um, Plato does. The Arabian and the quarter horse and the thoroughbred. They're all different, but they have the form of the horse. And in scientific categories, I think it's very helpful to say they all have the same genus. You know, honestly, the wolf and the dog are the same genus. And, and um, they have that form. Well, the forms says Plato, come uh, from the virtues. Now, now, Plato was the one who said Greek mythology is stupid. He said the Greek gods are base, they're petty, they're worse than human beings, so why would we worship anything that is like us or lower? Uh, now, Plato says we, 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 we heed the forms and we pay attention to the virtues from which the forms came. Now, the virtues for Plato are not things like faith, hope, and love. They're different, different virtues. But ultimately, uh, Plato says that the virtues come from the logos, the universal ordering and creative principle. So when you hear the word biology, it doesn't mean words about life. It means the universal ordering creative principle that made everything that is as revealed in life. And geology, you see then, is the universal ordering creative principle. The mind of God, if you will, as made manifest in attention to the earth. It's pretty high theology, you know? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. And, and furthermore, in this category, along tying this together, you may remember that Plato sort of says that we live our lives in general chained up in a cave, and what we see are two-dimensional reflections, they're not in color, on a cave wall. And we accept that as life. And the job of the philosopher is to unshackle themselves, leave the cave, and experience 3D and color, and then help other people become unshackled from a shadow reality. Our job is to accommodate 3D color instead of assimilating everything to a dark cave shadow. 
that's right out of Plato. And, and that's where I think this becomes a really interesting thing. So the gospel, the gospel is not about us being satisfied to be chained up. It's about us becoming unchained and helping other people become unchained and get out of the cave and live real life, not shadow life. And one last thought when we talked about um, creation, you know, there's this really influential book called the Zohar, written by the Baal Shem Tov. Do you know about this? Uh, this is the root text. There's two A's in there somewhere, but I don't remember where it is. In uh, the Jewish mystical sect called Kabbalah. And in Kabbalah, um, when God goes to create the world, God has to make room in God's self. So do pregnant women. It's like a pregnancy. God gives birth to the world. That's a sort of really interesting image. And ultimately, uh, this becomes kind of platonic, is that the sort of the, um, the spirits of God get kind of broken and, sh- and scattered throughout the world so that when we do righteousness is when we tikkun olam, it's when we heal the world, the world that God conceived. Conceived not only in God's mind, but in God's uterus, if that's okay to say, right? It's, it's really quite a lovely feminine image because, again, a pregnant woman makes room in herself for another life. And, of course, they're inextricably connected, and it is the mother who will nourish the child, right, that makes room for It's a sort of an interesting idea. And, and to chase it one more thread, right, um, Probably the most violent thing I've ever seen is the birth of my daughter. And boy, I can tell you, uh, pain level, I mean, I didn't experience it, but pain level appeared to be off the charts. And yet, um, my wife would take it back for nothing. And I wonder if that's insight into the Incarnation. What do you mean, take it back from Well, I mean, I, I think there is something like hardwired biologically into, the, into birth pangs, you know? And everybody knows that's going to happen if you have a baby. You, you know it's going to happen. And not just in the moment of delivery. I mean, even if you have a C-section, right? I mean, you, you, this child has behaved like a virus <laughs> and taken your nutrients from you, you know, irretrievably changed your body, right? I mean, you, you lose your abs. There's skin that will never be tied again. I think one of my wife's um, muscles came unpinned, you know? Um, see, the thing is, that's not a mystery. I mean, women know that's going to happen. And, and I don't want to speak for my wife as an observer, though. Um, well, you're basically saying she would do it all again. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm just, I, I had both of my girls naturally like that, and it is the first. I had no, I, I was not prepared for. I was 21, and I had Tina, and it, it, it was, you know, I was totally, and it was a period of time when you, you weren't having classes, and I mean, it was in a hospital, just 
oh my god, it was 12 hours of what seemed like horror. And when she was born and they put me, put her on my belly, that beauty, that happiness, that joy can never be um, duplicated in any way. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, the next morning, I, I was up and I was showering, and a nurse came in and she said, What are you doing? I said, I'm showering because I know the baby's coming soon and I want to see her and I want to be all. I was like full of this weird energy. It was, I, I've never talked about this in front of other people. It was like, but anyway, it was like that. Um, I don't know how about your wife or how she felt, but I remember. And, but talk about violence. It was... Yeah, but I, and again, I think there's this interesting, it's like even though that's the case, there is this bizarre connection. <laughs> it's not even that bizarre, right? I mean, you you know, I, and I, I can tell you, I spend more time with my daughter than my wife does during the day, but their connection is so primeval. I mean, they were connected for nine months. I mean, irretrievably. And um, look, I'm not trying to say like, oh, okay, like that makes it all okay. I just mean it's a different way than I think our normal categories of things like pain and connection and suffering because some of that's involved, but that doesn't describe the experience wholly. If you come back to your image of God... Um, would you think there's pain there? Yeah, absolutely. I think there has to be pain. And I think... Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I actually think this is a really interesting thought, if I can talk about men just for a second. I think that um, culturally... This could be wrong. It's a very broad brush. But I think culturally, men don't carry pain as sorrow. We carry it as anger. So that's culturally okay for men to be angry when something hurts. Um, and, and I'll tell you chemically, right, anger release, uh, releases like adrenaline. It, it's that fight thing. It gets us ready. And um, boy, you know, um, I've had relationships that have been really frustrating, and I'll tell you, I get really mad. Um, and I think it's because as men, culturally it's not really okay for us to experience sorrow as sadness, we experience sorrow as anger. I, I also do that. I, I, I can't yeah. tolerate being sad, so I end up being mad. Yeah. And what's funny, right, is there's consequences either way, because that adrenaline moves us. It makes us very productive. Um, it gets our bodies in gear. What it does to our heart, <laughs> obviously very bad. Which I want to tell you, I think that's probably why heart disease is bigger in men than women. I think that's part of it is just that we bear that stress in our hearts. And I think we're afraid of sadness because it could lead to depression. And I think that makes sense. Obviously, there's got to be, <laughs> I don't know, there can't just be these things. But I do know, and, and I, I don't think you're an anomaly. Uh, it, I think anger, for some reason, is more physically rewarding than sadness. I mean, I really think that. Our brain, 
our brain does stuff with it. And you know, there's people who are adrenaline junkies and they jump out of airplanes to get the adrenaline. But anger does that for us too. Anger gets that right out. And, and so does cortisol. But you know, any good therapist will tell you anger is not even a real emotion. Anger is like anxiety. <laughs> yeah. And usually we don't say, I'm feeling disrespected or disappointed or frustrated. We say, I'm mad. Because we, we don't know what those other things sort of feel like. I, 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 know, I hope I'm not sounding too strange here or too off, off topic. I'm afraid I've gotten really off here. Um, except to, to think about how it is that God bears pain. And, and I, and I want to suggest that one of our attractions to hell is that's what God does when God gets mad. But what if God doesn't get mad? <laughs> what if God feels disrespected and frustrated and disappointed without turning that to anger? I mean, it's just a what if. It might take hell off the table because, you know, like... Boy, my word is gold. I realized this I was talking to my wife last night. As a parent, if I say, you do this, why will happen? I'm like 95% of the time. My kid knows. Why is happening? <laughs> There's been a few times where I've said, you know, I promised why, and I think that would be too severe, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> a few times. Thank God I should have done it a whole lot more, you know. Um, but I wonder if we don't sometimes put that on God. I mean, I just I wonder if we don't do that. So is God angry like us? Or is God able to feel and carry things like disrespect and frustration and disappointment without mapping it into the anger category? I hope so, yeah. and then I hope I can learn to do that more too. Do you? Do you I hope you get what I'm, I'm saying. Um, well, and 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 here you said something really interesting. I mean, we we we've got some interesting imagery. If it's okay to explore a little bit further, John says uh, it's the glory as of a father's only son. As. As. That's like a simile. <laughs> Similes are comparisons using like or as, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important. John doesn't say the word is the Father's only Son. It's like that. <laughs> and that's really freeing, isn't it, to know that this is an analogy meant to help us understand, not to force us into Dad and Son. But Jesus shows us God. Yeah, what does the author say? Through Jesus, the Father's heart is known. Heart. Remember, heart means center of will. That's well, so just interesting thought. Jesus shows the center of God's will, not the center of God's feelings. The light shines in the dark, and the dark has not overcome it. It's really interesting. I was talking to Lila, who's like a PhD in particle physics, and we we're talking about the wonders of light. You know, and I've mentioned this in church before. It's interesting to think that, um, you know, when you extinguish a candle, 
the light didn't go out really. It changed into smoke, so light changes. And you know, light's a, um, a wave and it's a particle, so it doesn't have mass, but it has momentum. Uh, so interestingly, light doesn't just, you, you, you know, sort of produce something we can see, it also actually moves us. <laughs> it's sort of interesting to think that even though we may not be able to see saints anymore in our lives, they've moved us because that's what light does. And, and you know, there's that really great book that came out uh, and won the Pulitzer Prize about three years ago, All the Light We Do Not See. And it talks about scientifically how visible light occupies like that much of the spectrum. And so frankly, all the light we do not see. <laughs> it's just sort of interesting to think that we only see some of light. And all of that sort of richness the light shines in the darkness, and even if we can't see it, the darkness doesn't overcome it. And so Lila's thought, you know, is really, there's no such thing as a dark switch. <laughs> there's only light switches. This is sort of an interesting thing to think about. And sometimes, you know, we think about God's love in the middle of accountability and brokenness, and we don't see it. And all the light we do not see doesn't mean... It's not there. It's an interesting claim John might be making. I don't even know if we always feel it moving us either, but I think the promise is light as a particle has momentum and it does push us. <laughs> even if we don't feel it, it's pushing us. What's well, it sort of... I mean, I, I don't, John's not a scientist, but um, since I have limited scientific understanding, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting you just said using light is pushing us. I, I always thought of God as pushing us. When I get off the path, I get pushed back on the path. I get off the path, I get pushed back on the path. And it's sort of like that for me. It's a, a, you know, it's a, it's a road and it's not straight. Because I get off it. But somehow, God pushes me back on. Yeah. That's how I like to think about it. And sometimes, perhaps, we're more aware of the push, or we're more responsive to it. But what if, like, light... That's why I have to be here. What if God's always pushing on us, and we're just not aware of it because we don't see it? Yeah. And we're so immune in our own bodies, we don't feel it, but sometimes we are. You know, I mean, that's, that's it. That's usually in retrospect. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> that sad? Oh, yeah. It's sad. Okay, I talked away a lot. What, 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 what did we miss from our reading? We still have some time together. I don't think we missed anything, but you just explained. I had a, I'm trying to figure out how to say this in a short way. I went into a Bible study and I had never questioned my faith before that. And during the Bible study, I went through about a 48 hour dark night of the soul. Mm. It was like, I was just convinced. What if, what if I'm wrong? Mm. I mean, what if this doesn't exist? What if there is no God? What is this? And that diagram, when you were doing that, I kept thinking, that's exactly 
what happened to me was I was in the middle of this Bible study and they were described, it was Esther, I think. Yeah, it was Esther. And I looked in the Oxford Bible where they tell you that Esther is not probably real and that it's a compilation of three different... And I thought, well, okay, if that didn't happen, how much else did... Didn't happen. You know, it was one of those domino effect things. Yes. And why, why all of a sudden I had that happen, I don't know. But that, that diagram really, for the first time, explained to me, because I've always gone back to that time period and thought, how did that happen and why was it so profound, you know, for, for that short period of time? But that really described, you know, the, the new information and the crisis and then what are you mm -hmm. going to do, you know? And at the end of the 48 hours, I thought, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I can't live like this. Mm -hmm. So which one? So which did you do? Did you assimilate or did you accommodate? I don't hear. Okay, you tell me which one I did because what I decided at the end of the forty-eight hours was that I could not live without God. Mm -hmm. And even if I was wrong, it was a better way of living, and that my God was just larger than I had thought that God was. That my view of God had been too small. You know, I, I, if I can say it differently, what I've heard, I had a professor tell me this one time. It doesn't have to be true to be the truth. Mm -hmm. That's exactly, that, that describes it exactly. Yeah, because it's the point uh -huh. that Esther yes. makes, not the words. Well, they're so very different. I think you're right. Very different. And I think sometimes we squander. It's interesting we got to read this in Isaiah. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread? And we spend our money on facts instead of truth. And we usually get very distracted by facts instead of by truth. And I, maybe that's a good thing to, to think about. You know, I... I um, Thinking about accommodating and assimilating, you know, that passage from Isaiah says, My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For just as water falls to the earth and trickles down and brings new growth, so does my word not return to me void, but accomplishes what I speak. And um, to think that God's ways might just be more patient and convoluted but life-giving than my own. It's just really interesting to think, you know. Um, I guess that's hopeful. <laughs> there, you know, for those who might be able to look back over your life and see it, but those who follow God, there are wonders to be hoped from time to time. When you show your love for God, God is going to meet you there and push you forward. Who knows times in your life when you know God is there? Mm -hmm. There's no proof of it. There's no, you know, it's not a fact-based thing. You just know it. Yeah. And don't doubt it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with doubting it. 
Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with doubting, but the thing is this, don't talk yourself out of it. Well, my point is, I mean, it's, I think it's okay mm-hmm. yeah. to do that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, doesn't mean that you are um, are non-believer. Yeah. It's. Well, you have to think things over. Yeah. It's a, kind of about free will. Yeah. When about one of my years in college, we had a Jesuit that had been a missionary in Japan for 25 years. Yeah. So he had come. They, they, at 25 years, they come back to the states or something. Anyway, he's teaching this class, and he gave everybody a little button that said, "Thank God I'm atheist," because it means unless you do that and think, you know, you're not really going to get there. See, I, and I think coming back to the beginning, what we were talking about with accountability, it's, there's this line by the poet Rilke that says, faith and love are always in us. We are not always in faith and love. And that's just a really interesting thought about God's presence and accountability. Rilke also writes, bidden or unbidden, God is ripening. <laughs> really interesting, yeah. uh, interesting thought, actually. Yeah, but if the Holy Spirit indwells us, then yes, God is with us, in us. So it needs to grow. Yeah, and I think then the accommodation is whom does the Holy Spirit indwell? I just I think it's a really important thing because I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I was recently at a meeting of the clergy in which um, there was some direction that people should not be admitted to communion unless they had been baptized. And I I'm just going to tell you I don't understand that. Yeah, that's way request when I was born. That still is, by the way, the pronouncement of the House of Bishops, but I don't understand that. I don't understand it. What does baptism do that makes you suitable to be at God's table? Does God need it? Do we need it that much that you need somebody to put water on you so that you're welcome? I think it's a really important part of our practice. Does that mean people aren't good enough to come? Was that a declaration or was that just a discussion? Somewhere in the middle. I didn't get a really strong understanding. Now I understand it's been a tradition. I understand it's been a tradition. But I don't understand the reason of it actually. I don't understand the reason. When you're not alone, there are a lot was, of us. Yeah. Was there ever an example of, of Jesus baptizing anybody? Well, we'll read about that next week, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sacraments are outward signs of... Inward and invisible graces. Yeah. And so it's just this... Uh, baptism is just a, is a sign that 
um, this person's life is consecrated to God, it doesn't mean they're going to be perfect or anything of that sort. And uh, it's just a sign that it's more the outward sign that they are committed to living the Christian life, cooking an infant. You can't do that, so that's why we have confirmation. But if a adult is baptized, um, you know, then it's just an outward sign to people that, yes, I've decided to live my life for God, but it doesn't mean. And so a person who hasn't had baptism but leads a good life and, you know, does the things that a good human being does, they should not be denied the Eucharist. Should they be denied if they're a terrible human being and want to come? I mean, what if they're a serial rapist and killer and they want to come and have communion? Should they be denied? I think that's a really critical question. I do. Yeah. Whose table is it? It's the table of God. Yeah. And all should be welcome. And because you never know, it may be a turning point. See, I think that's an interesting piece, right? Is it just that all are welcome or all should be invited? <laughs> you know what I mean? And then if that's the case, and we really accommodated our lives to that belief, how would we live differently? What we'd rather do is assimilate that idea so that the people who come here are invited, but they had to come here first. So how do we be God's inviters? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. What is the justification by the bishop, or House of Bishops, yeah. House of Bishops for that requirement? Um, I don't actually know. I probably should read should read more about it. And the reason I ask this is because if let's say there were no religious traditions, period, does that mean that that there would be no um, that we would be unloved by God? I don't think so. Yeah, you know, I I've heard this. So, in, so, yeah. so my thought was that what this is is this is the initiation into a religious tradition, and that's all it is. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thought. I've had two other pe two other ways of coming at this same question. One was that I had a friend who uh, was very critical of this joint worship service that was like interfaith, and uh, there were like Hindus and, and Muslims and Christians, and somebody was offering the Eucharist, and she was very upset because these people were taking the body of Jesus. And... Um, they didn't really believe in that, and they were taking it. And I think what I, I think what I got from that is, okay, you think if we take it the wrong way, we're somehow disrespecting God because we're not appreciating the gift. And I don't know if gifts actually work like that. <laughs> I, I had a test on my um, question on my GR, GOE, the General Ordination mm -hmm. Exam, and it said basically the local mosque has gone out of business and they want a place to worship and you're the rector of the church, will you let them worship in the church? And at my last church, I, I, I advertised this question and, and, and one of my good Roman Catholic friends sort of said, well, yeah, they could do it anywhere except in the sanctuary because if they were in the sanctuary, they would be disrespecting the reserved sacrament. And I think the question is, how can you ever disrespect the reserved sacrament? How can you do that? I mean... Is, is God susceptible to disrespect? Or are we? I, do, do you know what I mean? Well, you may remember, I'm sure everybody here does, that there was a mosque that was, that was torched 
down in Angleton or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the local, I'm not sure, I think it was Baptist yeah. uh, church said, mm -hmm. please come and, and, and worship in our, in, in, our, in our church because, you know, we want to respect your religious tradition. Well, I said, I thought that was great. Yeah, and to give you a home. And we worship this, well, we worship God. This, it's the same God, but, you know, it gets perverted sometimes but by some people. But, it, you know, God in Arabic is Allah. And it's the one God. So why would we refuse anybody because if they're Muslim or whatever? Because we assimilate the gospel. We don't accommodate to it. I, I just want to put that up to you. And these are just small tastes, I think, of what John might actually be inviting us to live into, which is not longer life, but everlasting life. And Catholics, Romans, are even worse. They will not give you communion if you are not a Catholic. You know what? I often go anyway. That I think is for a different day. Um, yeah. Thank you. We've had fun. I hope you've had fun. And we will pick up with John next week.